Welcome to The Partial Historians. We explore all the details of ancient Rome. Everything from the political scandals, the love affairs, the battles waged, and when citizens turn against each other. I'm Dr. Rad. And I'm Dr. G. We consider Rome as the Romans saw it, by reading different authors from the ancient past and comparing their stories. Join us as we trace the journey of Rome from the founding of the city. Welcome to a brand new episode of The Partial Historians. I am one of your hosts, Dr. Rad, and joining me in cyberspace, woo, 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 it's me, it's Dr. G. We are uncharacteristically not recording together together. It does feel weird. Hopefully that doesn't uh, influence the way that anybody feels about our charisma together. <laughs> Never. We are full of charisma, uniqueness, nerve and talent. <laughs> So, Dr. G, the last time that we met, we had possibly one of the most confusing years to deal with. So let's step back in time and do a brief recap of 434 BCE in ancient Roman history. The, the, finger sound, <laughs> the fingers I don't think are going to translate in the podcast medium. <laughs> it's really disappointing. All right, I did my fingers to suggest that we're going back in time, but uh, you'll just have to imagine that for yourselves, listeners. 434 BCE, what a time to be alive. It was chaos, I have to say. That's my summation. In terms of who was a magistrate and who was not, it was very difficult to figure out because we had pretty much everything that the Romans could possibly throw at us. Consuls. We had two pairs of consuls, so that's a lot of consuls, uh, way more than anybody needs. We had a set of military tribunes with consular power. There was about three of those. And... At least one dictator, maybe more dictators. We did indeed. It was very confusing. And this seems to be because there was a lot of chaos in terms of what was actually, what the Romans were actually dealing with. Was there a threat from a neighboring city? Wasn't there? (laughs) It all seemed to build up to something that never quite happened. And this also seems to tie into like broader issues that our sources, our written sources are having with like dealing with the weird chronology that they've ended up with because they want every year to exist independently of each other, but they're not sure where things started. And some of their calculations are now starting to crop up as mistakes. Yeah, definitely. But certainly there's been some issues with the Etruscans. It didn't seem to come to much last time, but it seems to be why we had so many magistrates. Yeah, there's some issues. And there's this ongoing situation that Rome has at this stage with all of their neighbours. And there's a lot of grumpiness and there's a lot of switching of sides and Rome stamps its feet. And this year it just has, like everybody had a turn, it was a carousel of uh, magistrates. Everybody took a ride on the uh, magisterial horse, as it were. (laughs) Which is funny because some of them were actually the Magister Equitum, yeah. <laughs> got to ride that horse. Somebody's got to do it. We've got a whole role for yes, that now. Exactly. <laughs> um, so Master of the Horse is the pun there, just in case you uh, didn't catch my excellent Latin. So with that in mind, uh, the fact that 434 was building up to be something spectacular and then really fizzled out, 
I think it's time to journey forward in our narrative history of ancient Rome into 433, hopefully with Livy and Dionysius, our main sources by our side. But perhaps not. Oh, you've got big dreams, I have to ah. tell you. Dionysus, a Halicarnassus is definitely missing. Ah, oh, dear. Well, we'll journey forward with just Livy by our side. Onwards, Livy, onwards! <laughs> Livy is carrying a lot of weight he is. here. BCE. Who are our magistrates this year, Dr. G? Look, as far as I can tell you, we've only got military tribunes with consular power. That is what I have as well. But just you wait, I'm going to tell you all about oh, them. Oh yeah, no, look, I'm, I'm, I'm here for it because I can see that one of them is a Fabian. Oh. A fabulous yes, Fabian. A, a fabulous Fabian. And yet, for me, not the most interesting of the three, but we'll get into that. So we've got Marcus Fabius, uh, son of Quintus, grandson of Marcus Vibulanus, a patrician, previously consul in 442 BCE. Okay, it's been about 10 years, all right. It's time for another tour around the block of power. Yeah, and then we've got a new name, which is a very unfortunate name, I'm going to (laughs) say. I'm into this guy. I'm ready for it. This is my new fave. Marcus Folius. Son of whoever, grandson of whoever, Flackinator. I, I think we, for people to really capture how awful the name is, I think we need to say more more English. So, Flassinator. <laughs> I am the Flassinator. I leave ladies unsatisfied all over the city. <laughs> I find you so fascinating this evening. <laughs> I love the way that you said we need to pronounce it more English and then immediately went into a German accent. <laughs> you know what I mean? The soft C, the soft C. Oh, oh, I should. Oh, oh I shouldn't say that. Too, too soft, too soon. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah, that was too much, too much. That's, yeah, one for the flaconators right there. <laughs> so the name flaconator, I looked into this because I loved it so much and I had a good giggle. No, I'm glad you did. It comes from flacchio to flag. Mm. Um, so... Potentially, this name could be interpreted as somebody who makes flags or somebody who puts up flags okay. or somebody who flags things. I was going to say, I don't really associate the Romans with flags. I mean, like, yeah, like flags. This family line is not going to last for very long. <laughs> that's the other spoiler. Well, that's, that's even more puzzling because I feel like flags would be more necessary later. Mm. Yes, but uh, but I, I think maybe the sexual pun on Flacinator was maybe too much for a Roman family to handle, and so they left the name aside. Understandable. They are very big on masculinity. Yeah. Yeah, and this uh, this doesn't bode well for uh, poor old Marcus. No, it doesn't. And finally, we have Lucius Sergius, son of Gaius, grandson of Gaius Fidinus. Previously console of 437 yeah i was gonna say now this is the guy that got the name from the whole conflict over fidene that colony that treacherously turned to the etruscans yeah so this is interesting as well so i i did this is one of my rabbit holes for this episode since basically all i have is these three names and nothing else to go (laughs) on Uh, i started looking in to what's going on with roman names 
because that's always like part of how you can build a narrative out around them. And so we've got Vibulanus, and this name is thought to be a toponymic kind of cognomen. So it's based on a place. I was going to say, I feel like I have heard something close to that before, and I don't know whether it's in the name or the place. Yeah, and to be honest, we're not sure where the place that's connected to this name would be located. Um, So that's a bit of a problem for Mm. us. Flaconator, we've already had that reference back to Flaceo. Yeah. And Fidinus, as you note, is that connection to Fidene, which is this ancient sort of Latin city that the Romans have tried to claim for quite some time, entered into some negotiations with, and have recently been in the bad books with Rome because they threw their lot in with the Etruscans, which uh, Rome was not satisfied about. No. So we've got this sense that Rome is drawing in people from all around the local region, essentially. And that's part of what we can say with these names. I've definitely not heard the name Folius before. Yeah, and this seems to be a really small gens. I did a little bit of research on this one as well. Mm. So Marcus Folius Flaconator, as I like to call him. The, <laughs> the, the, the Flaconator. Flaconator, I was going to say, please. Yeah. <laughs> this, is, this is one case where you do not want to drop the the. No, no, I don't. The Flaconator himself, he comes from a gens called Folius this is a really small gens. It doesn't produce many family lines and we don't know much about it. So it seems to not last beyond the early Republic. So I'm fascinated to see if they come up again. Well, I think I know why they didn't last very long. <laughs> yeah, having a bit of trouble keeping it up, as it were. Yeah. It's hard to produce. It's hard to continue the line when everything is so flat. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, I have to move on for this name. All right, well, I do have a little bit of detail for you about 433. Not a ton, but I do have a little bit. So, the tribunes of the plebs, they haven't been super painful for some time. So they've decided that 433 is their moment to reassert their awfulness, at least as... Finally! Yeah, at least as far as patrician narratives are concerned. So basically, they are blocking consular elections from happening they're absolutely adamant that it's not going to happen and they were being such an obstacle that the romans were close to having to move to an interregnum now there's a word i didn't think i'd say at this point in the republic (laughs) is that even something that you can do if you're not planning to hire a king i guess i mean i guess it's that idea of you know not having someone holding that ultimate magisterial power We were unable to run the elections in time and now we need a holding pattern until we can get the elections off the ground. Yeah, I mean, and and maybe it was just, I mean, look, (laughs) this could just be Livy here. I mean, let's face it. But it could also be the fact that they kind of know that this is, this is something that's an option, I guess. They're kind of like, well, we need to have something happening somewhere. If we can't have consuls and we don't want to have military tribunes with consular power, then this is really our only way out of this situation without having a king. So maybe it's that, maybe it's that. Anywho, as you might suspect, eventually it turns to military tribunes with consular power. So that's why we have those three guys with a spectacular array of names. The aim being that there would obviously be a plebeian elected. I mean, presumably that's why the tribunes are being so painful and trying to make sure that it's not consuls because they want to finally get a plebeian in office, Dr. G. But then once again, 
They're all freaking patricians. I was going to say, I mean, if that was the goal, surely they've been thwarted because every man on this list of military tribunes with consular power is a patrician. I know, I know. And it, it always seems to obviously add some sort of justification to this idea that the plebeians really aren't equipped to do the job. And the, and the plebeians themselves know it because they're not voting for them, apparently. So Well, I don't know. I don't think they ever get a real chance to, to be honest. We know the voting system is pretty rigged in ancient Rome. It is, and this is exactly it. But I think that in in the way that it's represented, the way that Livy throws out these little comments every now and then, it is like the plebeians themselves aren't voting for plebeians that they are acknowledging the patricians to be superior candidates not in this case specific he doesn't specifically say that about this case but in previous elections this is kind of what he's intimated it's really yeah it's interesting isn't it because i feel like i mean livy is not a roman is he <gasps> he's how dare you <laughs> Well, I'm just I'm just trying to put this into context. No, you know, he's, he's not from he's Rome. He's a bit of no. yeah, he's not from no. Rome. He's a bit of an outsider. He probably considers himself to be sort of like Romanesque in particular ways. Like obviously, he speaks Latin and things like that. But it's not like he is of the elite, and his investment in the elite narrative is really quite interesting to me. Well, he does hang out with Augustus, so you know, oh. yeah. Maybe I should go back in time as Livy. Well, it would definitely be a way of getting it in with the imperial family, and you'd get to help Claudius with his history, so... Oh, I like history. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Anywho, now, this is obviously all shaping up to be yet another chapter in this so-called conflict of the orders, which is apparently plaguing Rome throughout the centuries. But, as luck would have it, an epidemic breaks out, and everyone's very distracted. Wow. I mean, there's, you just have so much more detail. I mean, when I have oh, no source no. material, I'm really just excited to see where the story goes. I'm like, really? An epidemic? No hints at all. <laughs> Even better than that, they decide that they're going to give a temple to Apollo because of his association, obviously, with, you know, like plague and medicine and that kind of stuff. Now, it's a little tricky to verify this archaeologically, apparently, in that... This temple, if it did indeed exist at this time, was subsequently damaged in later attacks by people from the Gaulish ethnicity. Oh. Yeah, and it's not until later that it's actually restored. But we're talking about a location somewhere between the Circus Flaminius and the Forum Holitorium. Yeah, which is at this time outside of the Pomerium because Apollo is not a Roman god per se. Mm, I was going to say, yeah. yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So there is some archeo- there are some archaeological remains, but none that can verify going back this early with this particular cult. However, the name associated with this particular temple is apparently Apollo Medicus which does seem to indicate that it was a health concern. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, they're definitely leaning into being like, it's not just any version of Apollo that we need to satisfy right now in order to deal with this plague. It is literally medical Apollo. Exactly. Please, please solve this for us. (laughs) Put away the sunshine, pal. Get out your medical kit. Something along those lines. So yes, that's just a little side note. Um, So this all came about because the Duanviri or the two men, consulted the Sibylline books. So those 
an amazing collection that the Romans have of various tidbits, oracles, what have you, where they could have had a lot more, but they destroyed a lot because one of the kings was being a little bit difficult about the price and haggling and not doing it very well. But anyway, they consulted these books of prophecy to try and figure out how indeed they could appease the gods because, of course, that's the explanation for a plague of this magnitude. And this is obviously where we get the erection of the temple of like, this is the solution to our problem. And it's possible that the cult came from Kume. So maybe so. Oh, okay. The Apollo cult came from Kume. Yeah. Okay. Oh, that's an interesting sort of parallel because isn't that where the... Some of the Sibyls are as well. I think, I think so. It might be. Well, yeah, it, it's, in, it's definitely in that Magna Gratia kind of area, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. 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 Anywho, unfortunately, the temple didn't quite do the trick and many people still <laughs> died. Yeah. Look, I, I mean, I'll, I'll put forward what I think is like the most reasonable question in these kind of situations, mm. because this kind of thing is going to happen a lot in ancient Rome. Sure where stuff goes wrong and they're like, you know what, we need a new temple to the gods. But when it's the midst of a plague or a pestilence, who actually is healthy enough to engage in the building project? And I suspect that what might be happening here is that they make the official dedication for the space where they're going to build it. Yes. And maybe hope for the best that things will clear up so that they can actually finish the project because they're all quite ill right now and they need some help. You are correct. It was in fact dedicated in 431, so sometime after 433. Yeah, because basically many people are dying. It doesn't seem to matter if you're in the city or the country. You're equally likely to get sick and die from this particular plague. And it was something that was affecting cattle as well as humans. This sounds like one of those ones that's been doing the rounds for a little while because this does not sound surprising from other plagues that we've talked about in recent times no well we we all we we know and we've seen obviously in our own times that when people live in close contact with animals there are going to be diseases that transfer from one to the other eventually it's just going to happen particularly if you don't respect the relationship that humans perhaps should have with the natural environment (laughs) But that's not saying that they brought it on themselves. I think this is just one of those things. But yeah. Ouch, Rome. Ouch. (laughs) That was more more a commentary on our own time than in Roman times. They don't understand how disease works uh, in quite the same complexity. So No, no, fair enough. Now, of course, as often happens with a plague and you've got so many people dying and people are dying all over the place, not just in the city, there is a genuine concern that this is going to lead to a food shortage because... Of course, farmers are amongst the sick and amongst the dead. So the Romans start, they start searching for grain. They're trying to be proactive. We've seen what happens when they're not. You know, a few years ago, we had a bit of a disaster where we ended up having a nacho king and that nobody wants that again. Doritos have pulled the sponsorship. We don't want this to happen again. (laughs) No more of those upstart plebeians doing a good job on the grain supply. We can't have that. Yeah, so they're searching around in various areas like Etruria, the Pomptine district, which is possibly near the Volscians, Cume again, and Sicily looking for corn. Ah, the breadbasket, as it were. And this is kind of where the year wraps up, to be honest, because everyone's kind of on a bit of a, a low point. So there's no debate about who's going to be in charge of Rome. They're just like, you know what? Let's just stick with military tribunes with consular power. Seems the least hassle for everyone. 
nobody has the energy to get into a massive fight at this point in time. Although it is interesting mm. that up until now, we've been seeing the military tribunes with consular power coming in when there seems to be a situation where Rome is navigating problems on multiple fronts. Like they've got issues with many of their neighbours and they're like, we need more than just consuls. We need more people who can lead with Imperium. Oh, agreed, and- agreed. I think this is just more evidence that this is not necessarily actually to do with the struggle of the orders. <laughs> Oh, yeah, definitely. And also that maybe the whole shift in focus across the year has gone from like, let's deal with everybody who we can't stand around us right now to, oh no, it's a plague. It's when plague hits that you realise how much you depend on your neighbours. Yeah, well, I don't know if uh, the Pontine marshes are going to really produce grain every time they're they're fighting with the Volsky like every five years. Like, (laughs) come on, guys. Hey, you go looking for corn where you can find it. Is it here? (laughs) (laughs) All right. So that takes us into 432 in my account. All right. All right. I'll turn over my notes. 432. Guess who's missing for this year? Consuls. Dionysius of Halicarnassus. Ah, yes. 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 Of course. Of course. Done a disappearing act. But nonetheless, I feel like you're going to tell me who the magistrates are. I definitely will. And I'll go into their names because that's. That's my current rabbit hole of choice (laughs) (laughs) when I have no information. We have military tribunes with consular power. Mm. There are three of them. Mm. We start with Lucius Penarius, Mm -hmm. Mamercinus. Ah, that name again. Possibly Rufus as well in there. So Mamercinus is considered to be one of these names that uh, is derived from Mamercus. Which makes sense because I'm pretty sure we had a guy that had both those names or maybe they Mm. switched interchangeably between those names, but I I remember struggling with both. It's possible. Um, The source that I was reading, the scholar I was reading today about this kind of stuff seems to classify uh, Mamacinus as one of those sort of additional endings, the I-nus ending, as part of the denotation of being adopted. Ah, yes, of course, of course. But... uh, to be clear, we're talking about the adoption from the Mamercus family. Yes. It's, uh, so it's representing that this was their birth family. Like Gaius Octavius became Octavianus once he was adopted. Yes. So it's like this reference back to his birth family and just letting you know he's sitting in a different family now, but this is where he actually came from. Yeah, and that is a reference to Augustus, just in case you guys aren't super familiar with all Augustus's many identities which is fair enough, you know, he had a lot. He had a lot. And Mamercus going further down this rabbit hole, Mamercus itself is actually an Oscan pronoun. Oh. Or praenomen, I should say. It starts out in Oscan as a praenomen and then shifts into a cognomen when it comes into Latin. Interesting. Okay, well, that makes sense. We know that the Romans had actually quite a decent amount of contact with the Oscans. That's my little colour for the first character. Excellent. So that's Lucius Penarius Mamacinus Rufus, Uh a patrician. Yeah, yeah. Guy number one. Military tribune with consular power number two, Lucius Furius. Yeah. Son of Spurius. Furius. (laughs) Grandson of somebody, Meldolinus Fusus. (laughs) Also a patrician. Mm. So... Medulinus, I hear you ask the question. I'm here to help. 
Don't worry. We have actually mentioned this name before, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, this is... I think I think we've come across a couple of these guys. Yeah. Um, this is a cognomen that is also derived from place. So it's toponymic in nature. Mm-hmm. And it's a reference to Medulum or Medulium, okay. which is a place, a little city north of the Anio River. Right. And also near to Alba Longa. So it's sort of... It's really quite close to Rome when you sort of do the triangulation on all of those things. Yep, yep. Exact location, unknown. <laughs> Excellent. And we also have Spurius Postumius Ooh. Albus Regulensis. Okay. Our third patrician. That's a three out of three for patricians. Yeah, I'm not surprised. So Albus, you know you you know you want to take a guess. You know you do. I'm going to say it has something to do with Alba Longa. Mm, I thought you'd go Harry Potter, but... Well, I'm trying to not mention Harry Potter. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough, fair enough. Albus here is sort of a reference to white hair, it seems. Oh, okay. Clever J.K. Rowling. In that respect, Mm. in not other respects. (laughs) Not in other respects, no. And Regilensis, again, another toponymic cognomen from Regulus, the famous late Regulus... Um, which, uh, for anybody who's forgotten, site of a great military victory for the Romans in 496 BCE. And I'm not surprised to have you mention this because the Postumii were associated with that battle. Therefore, obviously, it makes sense that they have that as a cognomen. But also, it is going to come up again in this ep- it's in this episode, I think. There's going to be a... Oh, dear Lord. Yeah, there's going to be a mention <laughs> of that battle. Yeah. Ooh, that's going to be a nice surprise for me then because literally all I have is these names <laughs> and these ancient references back to me like, you remember that time in 496 where they had a battle by a lake? So we think that Regulus is near modern Frescati. So that's that kind of hilly region to the southeast of Rome. Right, okay. Um, lovely spot. Uh, there's a lake somewhere there that seems to be connected to this. Okay, cool. All right, well... As tends to happen in the analytic nature of our accounts, now that we're in a new year, Dr. G, it seems like the disease has started to ease up. Plague o- wow. Yeah, plague only ever lasts a year, really. Oh, look, it just comes in 12-month waves, guys. Yeah. I mean, like, it's, it's obviously still, like, lingering, but it's definitely not as bad as it was in 433. So good times ahead. And because the Romans learnt... From the episode with the Nacho King. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you're going to have to go back and check out that episode. They are Boy Scout prepared. No famine. Booyah! They got the grain they needed. Yeah, they're, they're <laughs> totally fine. No famine. So all is looking well. Very nice. Very nice. It sounds like they're off to a great start. Yes, indeed. However, as tends to happen, once things start to come together domestically, everything starts to fall apart externally. Why? Yes. So there are councils being held amongst the Volscians and the Aquians. Oh, yes, those ancient enemies of our magnificent city of Rome. And they are talking of war. War, you say? Well, well, well. <laughs> I know. War is on the horizon, I'm afraid, old chap. We're going to get them. Take down the Romans one by one. Yes, exactly. So it seems that uh, they've decided that they're going to uh, postpone for a year. And that there's going to be no council to meet again before that date. They're just going to put it off. But unfortunately, one of the participants from the Etruscan side of things, they 
was not pleased with the decision, not at all. Because they felt that they're still very much at risk after the whole Fidene affair, don't you know? Fair enough, fair enough, old chap. Indeed. So, definitely war is on the horizon. But for now, it seems to have passed. And therefore, I will stop talking in this British accent. Even though it's very hard to stop once you start it. <laughs> I think you should just do the whole episode like that. I think it's good. Um, are you telling me, have I understood correctly, mm. that they is like, I'm going to pick up the slack for what's the Aquii and the Volskii getting together but not making a decision to actually go to war this year? Well, okay. So basically the Volskians and the Aquians had this council meeting and it seems to be held at the shrine of Voltomna. And this is where they're talking about war, but they're not ready for war just yet. The Etruscans seem to have joined them, at least in some capacity. As we know, the Etruscans are a very large group of people at this point in time. So I don't know if it's everybody in Etruria that's part of this meeting. But certainly they are still feeling (laughs) paranoid because even though I know it probably seems like a while ago now that we were talking about the whole feed and anything, it's not that long ago, actually. And therefore... Yeah, it's, it's only about a year and a bit ago. Yeah. And so they're just yeah. really nervous. They're like, if Rome could take out Fidene, we're next. <laughs> we're going to fall like dominoes. Yeah, exactly. It's going to be communism all over again. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so yeah, basically war is lingering in the background. But I digress. I need to return to Rome. So back in Rome, the tribunes of the plebs, they've had to, you know, rein it in a little bit because of the whole plague thing. And particularly, nobody's going to be interested in listening to them if their seeming agenda is just to gain more power for themselves, you know, or more accolades for themselves. But now, Dr. G, there seems to be peace. (laughs) Bring on the domestic chaos. Exactly. It's time to strike. The tribunes start having secret meetings at the houses of the tribunes of the plebs trying to keep everything very very secret they seemingly are (laughs) it's made it into the history books so they have not succeeded (laughs) that's how you know you've really failed to keep a secret (laughs) if it's recorded in a history 500 years hundreds hundreds of years later somebody noticed (laughs) mostly their main issue seems to be that they're very upset and aggravated because they feel like the plebeians don't really respect them very much. Really? The tribunes of the plebs don't feel respected by the plebs? Yes, because they keep getting military tribunes with consular powers. Like, they've got that happening. And the last couple of years, that has literally been the plan. And yet, no plebeians are being elected. See? I told you. Snarky little explanations from Livy about why there aren't plebeians being elected. It's not the fact that the system is literally stacked against them in terms of numbers, the way the votes are counted, and blah, blah, blah. No, no. It's that the plebeians don't respect their own kind. I see. You can never be victorious when the enemy is coming from within. Um, I don't think, though, that we've had a plebeian in this military tribunate. No, yes. that's their problem. That's their problem. <laughs> that's the issue. Oh, well, no wonder they're angry. Yeah. I mean, if I was a plebeian, I'd be outraged by now. I'd be like, guys, you had one job. One job. But this is exactly, <laughs> this is what I mean about Livy's explanation for why there haven't been plebeians elected tends to be that the patricians are just better candidates and the plebeians therefore vote for them or whatever. 
And you can see it again here. The fact that the tribunes are being portrayed as being angry because the plebeians don't respect them enough to get a plebeian magistrate elected. Hello! Do we not remember the reforms of Servius Tullius back under days of the monarchy? The votes are counted I, I, I weirdly. <laughs> the votes are counted weirdly. They are, they are. So, like, just to give a quick overview of the weirdness of some of this vote counting structure, you're basically put into groups that relate partly to your tribe, uh, but then they're also divided partly by your rank. And so what ends up happening is that you don't all get to vote at once either. You vote sequentially mm. and it's not secret. It's not a secret ballot um, like uh, many sorts of voting systems today. It's all done in the open in sequence and basically it's first past the post. So you only vote down to the point that there is a winner and everybody can see you vote. So if you need to maintain certain networks, if you are being pressured in particular ways, if you've got stuck in a dud voting group that you can't get yourself out of, one, you might not ever get to vote because it, it's never going to get down as far as you, but also you need to show the right people that you're voting the right way. And in this particular iteration of Roman history, as far as the later sources like Livian Dionysius of Halicarnassus are positioning it, the influence is all resting with this patrician class. Absolutely. And it's weird. Yeah. It's weird because we don't, there's lots of questions to be asked about, do we really have patricians right now in like, you know, the fifth century BCE? We're not sure. We don't have good enough records to be able to to say one way or the other, but there do, does seem to be elite families and less elite families. And the Tribune of the Plebs is really working on the side of the people who are outside of the traditional elites. Yeah, and we can't even say for certain that we really know how the voting works at this point in time either, but I think it's safe to say that the system seems to be rigged in favour of the powerful. I know, I know, nobody was expecting that. <laughs> We're always fighting the same fight. That is the things to remember, listeners. Every generation of us, it's always the same fight. Well, it actually reminds me, if, if all what we're saying is true, which, as I say, it might not be because there might be slight details that have been lost over time or whatever, but it does give me strong vibes of, like, post-Civil War America, you know, where technically African-American people have the right to vote, but because of systems of intimidation that are set up and because of power structures that have not been eradicated just because all of a sudden african-american people are no longer slaves but free i mean it's still that idea of like voting being too intimidating for you to do or people rigging it so that it's difficult for you to do or you having to behave a certain way to keep the power structures in your local area happy i mean it's not the same but it, it does remind me a little bit of that yeah, and I think for people living today in certain areas of the US, similar ideas would seem really resonant as well. Mm. There is a lot of issues around how you can vote, your freedom to vote, yeah. your capacity to get into the into the spot where you can do it, Absolutely. and your freedom to vote the way that you want to. Exactly, yeah. Whereas in Australia, it's compulsory, so you have to vote. There are pros and cons to that, which we won't go into right I, now. I know, I know. <laughs> 
Anywho, now not all the tribunes are on this bandwagon saying that it's the plebeians' fault for not having enough faith in them or whatever. That really, it's the patricians who are to blame because they campaign so strongly for their own candidates that the plebeians are swayed in their favour because they're either persuaded or threatened into voting for a patrician candidate because they realise it's in their best interests either way to do so. I don't know. I just think he's a real nice guy. (laughs) Now, this is something that's very strange, but hang on for a second and I'll try and explain it. At this point, apparently, the tribunes therefore suggested a law that no one should be allowed to whiten their toga to show themselves off to the public as a candidate. Now, Livy mentioned specifically that this seems like a very inconsequential detail, but that it was a very, very bitter feud over this law at the time, and therefore he needs to mention it, because the tribunes apparently won, and they got this law. Now, for those of you who aren't familiar with Roman fashion, this seems to be a reference to the toga candida, which is where we get the word candidate from when we're talking about political candidates or, you know, candidates for election. And the idea was that if you were running for a magistracy, you would wear like a blindingly white toga so that everybody could see that you were indeed running for some sort of political position. I kind of love it. I mean, I don't don't know what to say about Roman fashion at this point, but I do love the idea that like you can tell who's up for the for the candidacy by just how shining they are in the bright sunlight of Rome. (laughs) Yeah, I guess it's like, again, like with everything in in our society as well, your clothes kind of tell people, I suppose, a lot about, you know, who you are and the kind of message you're trying to get out there. And I can see how it would be useful in a day before you have much media available to you that your physical presence could act as an advertisement in that respect. Um, So it seems that Livy's explanation for this is that the plebeians were irritated enough that they would finally vote for a plebeian military tribune. So, you know, the law has been passed. The plebeians are finally at the stage where they're like, yes, it is time for a plebeian to take this office. (laughs) Nobody can stop us from dying our togas white and we'll be out there casting around for the vote. Exactly. So the patricians step in and make sure that that is not an option and that it's going to be consuls for the next year. Classic. Yeah, exactly. Supposedly, (laughs) this is necessary because of the lingering conflict that I mentioned with the Aquians and the Volscians. The Latins and Hernetians, Rome's allies, had let the Romans know that there was talk. They may have put it off for a year, but there was talk and that therefore Uh, war was on the horizon and therefore... You had to have consuls. Right. Which, I mean, in a way, I don't buy it because, one, the military tribunes with consular power, part of the whole point is their ability to navigate conflict um, and lots of it. And it sounds like Rome has a lingering potential for war coming from both the south and the north with the Aquins, the Volsci, in the south and they as part of Etruria in the north. So it's not like things are looking good for Rome right now from a 
potential military perspective. But I suppose, I mean, the consoles have done it for many years, so maybe it's only war on two fronts, not three. (laughs) Well, I don't think anybody knows exactly what they're facing, but as you say, I think it's more the fact that the consulship has apparently more of a pedigree, I suppose, when it comes to this sort of thing. The military tribunes with consular power, they're fairly new, you know. Have they been tested? I mean, nobody starved to death during the plague years, but is that enough? Now, I should flag at this moment in time that not all academics accept that this is actually something that happened, that there was... No way. I know, I know. (laughs) I'm just flagging it, that was there actually a law against the whitening of clothes? It is unclear. (laughs) We do not know for sure. Yeah, I mean, this is again, we're in this very hazy period in the 430s, as we've alluded to before, where it does seem like our sources are really struggling to make sense of whatever it is that they're working with. They do seem to have some source material, but they're struggling to make sense of it. They're struggling to fill in the gaps. It's possible that this is maybe some sort of misinterpretation about what had happened the year before, which had to do with the census and the office of the censor. Maybe it had something to do with that, perhaps, and it, or maybe it's something to do with something to do with canvassing in some capacity. But yeah, some academics have definitely flagged that they just feel like this doesn't fit and it doesn't entirely make sense where it's placed. Hmm. And it's the sort of thing where it's like this period as well is a bit tricky in terms of locking in any of the sequence of legislation. Yeah. So we sort of, we don't start to feel really confident as historians about that for quite some time ahead in our narrative from where we are right now. So it's, everything's a bit hazy. The other thing that I would mention here is that even for us as historians, uh, we don't have a lot to go on from our other types of evidence either. No. So We've got the Fasti Capitolini, Capitolini, which are these like lists of magistrates, but actually it's not a complete record. It, they are damaged inscriptions. And this is one of the chunks of time that we're missing that for as well. So we don't even have ways to clarify by going to like the epigraphy uh, necessarily. There might be scraps here and there. Um, but we don't have like a complete set to go to. And so there's lots of sort of haziness. So the fact that we've got any stories at all for the last couple of years is pretty incredible, really. Yeah, definitely. I think this is one of those time periods where not all academics, but some, some academics see our sources kind of trying to continue this narrative of the struggle of the orders you know, as best they can, because that's the overarching narrative that we've kind of got for this time period. But this particular example, for some people, seems a bit out of place. It seems a bit early to have legislation and moves made against people that may be maybe getting above themselves in terms of the way that they're canvassing political office and that kind of thing. So, and I can kind of see that. Look, there's a, yeah, there's a lot to take in with this. Um, I think this is actually probably a pretty good place to wrap up this episode. On white togas. All right, very well. On then. white togas, yeah. Very well. <laughs> All right, Dr. G, that means that it's time for the partial pick. <laughs> 
All right, so the partial pick is where we wrap up and see how Rome has fared for the year, or in this case, two years, because they're quite short ones. Indeed, indeed. There is a potential for 50 golden eagles across five categories, each ranked out of 10 eagles. Our first is military clout. Hmm. I feel like there's not much to say, really. <laughs> military smilitary. Yes, exactly. That's, that's a zero for me. <laughs> okay, well, that means we can swiftly move on to diplomacy. Uh, no. Well, they seem to have acquired enough grain to mean that they didn't go into a famine. Surely there were some diplomatic things going on behind the scenes there. I guess, but I guess I see that as more commerce. You know, like, <laughs> I don't think they talked them into giving the grain entirely. I think it was also the money that was talking. We won't kill you next year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, you're right. Like, okay, I'll give them like a one. <laughs> but if money's involved, I don't think it's entirely diplomacy. I don't think we have any idea where the money's involved, but maybe it is and maybe, uh, I don't know, well, yeah, presumably. I, I, say, I say money, but I, you know what I mean, like goods, I trade, do. whatever. But yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Would you like this excellent wooden axe? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that leads us to our third category, expansion. Oh boy. Absolutely not. Nothing on <laughs> the horizon. Yeah, nothing on the horizon. Yeah. All right. Uh, we're to us. Again, I'm going to say no. <laughs> Can we give them a negative score for the flackinator? <laughs> I think we have to. So does that mean they lose their point? <laughs> I think uh, notionally one point be taken off for, uh, for a name such as the flackinator. Or has he already suffered enough? <laughs> His line does die out. Um... <laughs> All right. I'll be nice. They can keep their point. All right. And the final category is the citizen score. Now, normally, normally if Rome does not score well across the other categories, it actually means that the citizens are having a bit of a break. But not this time. <laughs> well, no. I mean, they seem to be really frustrated with the voting system, frustrated with getting their own candidates into power. And, I mean, suffering a plague doesn't help. That's what I was going to say. It's mostly the plague that disturbs me. I mean, it was bad enough that they needed a temple. Ah, uh, yes. And who has to build the temple? The Philippians, probably. Well, look, I don't think, that, I don't know that they actually are building it, at, like, literally at this moment, but certainly the plague is obviously pretty bad, and it doesn't matter how wealthy you are, disease strikes everyone. That's true. That's true. Okay, so that sounds like a bit of a zero as well. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm afraid just... we're going to end up on one out of 50. And even that, oh. even that one was given begrudgingly. <laughs> Yeah, I really had to convince you to give that one. Rome, you've really you've really outdone yourself in these last couple of years. I think this is a, a sign that when we don't have really good, strong, detailed source material to go off, there's actually no way to judge whether Rome is doing well or not. Well, okay. Agreed. My account of Livy is very short. However, there is a bit of a sense of what's going on. It's just not good stuff. <laughs> And I didn't even mention that I've had Diodorus Siculus for both of these years and he gives me nothing, so... Of course, of course he doesn't. <laughs> yeah, to be fair, though, I was kind of imagining that we might do 433, 432 and 431 in one year. So let me assure the listeners that 431, things are going to pick up again. It's not going to be quite so bleak. 
<laughs> oh yeah no next episode tune in because uh things are going to be on the up and up in 431 believe me they definitely <laughs> are so thank you so much everyone for tuning in to hear all about the odd blankness of 433 and 432 bce you know so blank that we've even dyed our togas more white than usual <laughs> <laughs> you know what though i suppose if we're going to be kind if we look at 433 and 432 as being a bit like 2019 and 2020. No, sorry, 2020 and 2021. It makes sense. A pandemic really does put a dampener on your daily activities. It's a real blow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's hard to get anything done under those circumstances. Well, it has been a pleasure, as always, chatting with you, Dr. Rad, and I look forward to next time. Indeed. I can't wait to see what other vaguely medical names you have for me for the magistrates. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Partial Historians. We'd like to send a special shout out to our Patreon supporters, Ensley, Joshua P and Austin, who all joined us around two years ago in 2020, just around Christmas time. What a present. You too can become a Patreon if you so desire, if you love independent podcasting. In return, you receive special early access to our bonus episodes and occasionally we make a bonus episode that's just for Patreon ears only. However, if a monthly donation is not in your budget, you can always buy us a coffee on our Ko-fi account and provide us with much needed energy. And finally, we are very excited to say that our first collaboration will be released early in 2023. That's right, we wrote a book. If you would like to get a copy of Rex, the Seven Kings of Rome, then please head to Highlands Press. We'll have the link in the show notes and buy a copy to support not only an independent podcast, but an independent publisher as well. Ugh, so many good deeds going around. The sources for this episode can be found in the show notes on our website. Until next time, we are yours in ancient Rome. <laughs>